company. And uh, God, we just uh, pray and ask all of this in your glorious name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bible this morning to the New Testament book of James. We will be in James chapter 2. We're in a series I've titled Real Faith. James is writing his letter to the scattered church throughout the Roman Empire. The believers were facing difficulties and hardships. They were still struggling a bit with transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Culturally, they were living in a world with no middle class. Either you were rich or you were poor. And many of the early Christians were poor. Many were oppressed. Many were facing hardships due to their faith. And so James is writing this letter to bring encouragement and hope to the believers. Now James is a very practical, down-to-earth kind of a leader. He's not a thinker. He's not a theologian like the Apostle Paul. James is more the pastor-shepherd. He cares about theology, but what matters to James is that theology goes from the head to the heart and from the heart to the hands and to the feet. That's really, really what James is passionate about. James believes that real faith will show itself in practical, everyday living. Real faith will show itself in our speech. Real faith will show itself in how we treat others, especially the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Real faith will show how we handle our finances. Real faith will show itself in how we plan our calendars and what we make as a priority in our life. If I were to summarize the book of James, I would say this. Real faith produces godly character. Godly character produces godly actions, and godly actions advances the gospel in a sinful and broken world. Well, our text for today is James chapter 2. And James is focusing on the theme of relationships. He's addressing key questions like, how do we treat others? How do we engage relationally with people? Do we relate differently to the poor than how we relate to the rich? What do relationships look like both inside the walls of the church and outside the walls? These are the questions that James is bringing and he is providing answers. And this topic was not only important to the first century church, but it's just as important for us living today in the 21st century. I'll read uh, the first 13 verses of, of James chapter 2, and then I want to offer three principles on real faith 
and how that impacts our relationships with others. So follow along. James chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me begin with the first principle. Real faith sees and values people equally. No favoritism. And we see this in the first seven verses. Now, it's not human nature to treat people equally. We are drawn to people who are like us, people who have similar interests, people who have similar values, people who have similar beliefs. And so it's easy to put a higher value on someone who thinks and acts like us. That's human nature. Another problem with human nature is that we like to put labels on people. We look at people, we observe them, and then we tag a label. White collar, blue collar, conservative, liberal, 
lower class, middle class, upper class, elite. And with these labels, we ascertain a value. And that's really what favoritism is. It's putting different values on people based on what they say and what they do. Now, when it comes to the church, we remove the labels, at least we should, because what matters most is our identity in Christ. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is equal footing at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners and we are all saved by the grace of God. So the labels can be removed. We also know what Scripture teaches regarding God and how He views humanity. God sees and values people equally. All humanity bears the image and the glory of God. Everyone, every human being is of infinite worth and value. Again, no labels. Simply because we are human, we are priceless in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Well, here in James 2, James is forbidding the church to show favoritism because this is what was happening. Now, we might think that this really isn't an issue for our modern day churches because, you know, we're all about welcoming people. We're all about um, having greeters and, and coffee bars and, and guest ministries. And so we have this mindset that within the church, we don't ascribe any labels to anybody and we welcome everybody and that we are never guilty of showing favoritism. But I'm not sure if that is necessarily true. And before I go into that a little deeper, I have just a real quick one-minute video just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit and to bring a little humor to how we welcome people in the church. So this is Tim Hawkins, Christian comedian, and so hope you enjoy this. hand sanitizer in church. Anybody notice that? I don't know. At my church, they have these two hand sanitizer stations right by the front door greeters. That is not a good message. People come in on Sunday. How you doing? Nice to see you all. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming. You're going to love it here. We just love people. You can just be yourself. You can just be yourself. We don't care. We don't judge you. We just love. You sit back and whatever questions you have, you let us know. We'll let you know whatever we can do for you, okay? Y'all newly married? You got four kids? Four kids. That is amazing. God love. We love kids here. 
Kids are like a little gift from God is what they are. They are just wonderful little creatures that God gives us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where are y'all from? Arkansas? Okay. There's some mints in the basket. Grab a handful, you circus freaks. Go ahead. Oh, I gotta love Tim Hawkins. It's always good to laugh at ourselves. So, in, in the text here, James gives this example of rich man, poor man, and again, I'm not sure how well we relate to this. I, I think we, we do um, well in, in welcoming people and in, in not having uh, labels and not uh, ascribing values to people. Um, but let me uh, have a little liberty here this morning and and give a different illustration, maybe a little more modern day, and let's see if we are perhaps a church as good as we think we are when it comes to not showing favoritism. Instead of a rich man walking into PMC, let's assume a celebrity walks in. Let's say that Tim Tebow walks in the front doors of Pettisville Missionary. Tim Tebow, the former Heisman Trophy winner, former quarterback for the Denver Broncos, author of multiple best-selling books, a man who is truly a a committed, devoted follower of Jesus, uh, a man who, who champions the disabled, has the whole night to shine thing. Truly a a celebrity, not only a celebrity in Christian circles, but literally a celebrity uh, across the world. So imagine if Tim Tebow walks into our building. My guess is that word would spread rather quickly throughout the whole building. Guess who's here? Guess who walked into the foyer? I'm also guessing that as soon as we hear that it's Tim Tebow, everybody's starting to casually walk towards the foyer, thinking, oh, I need another cup of coffee just so I can see Tim Tebow. And soon, Tim is surrounded by people, and some might even ask for his autograph, and others are asking, can I have a quick selfie? with you, Tim. And then after the worship service, it's, it's more autographs, more selfies, and, and then, of course, we're making sure that Tim has somewhere to go for lunch, and, and whether we're inviting him to our home or inviting him out to eat, but we're going to treat him incredibly well because he is a celebrity. Now, let's assume that on the following Sunday, an ex-criminal comes into the foyer. He's just finished serving a three-year sentence for dealing drugs. This This man found Jesus while he was in prison, became born again, In fact, one of our PMC men who who often go to the jails had the privilege of leading him into that 
faith relationship with Jesus Christ. So he's served his time. He's ready now to integrate back into society. He's a born-again believer. He wants to become a part of a local church. So he walks through the front doors. No one really knows him. We have a few people who greet him and ask him what his name is. He goes and sits down for the worship service and kind of has a seat to himself because no one has really invited him to sit with them. As conversations are happening about who that is and what do we know about him, soon becomes known that he did serve time in prison. So we kind of keep our eye on him. Might even keep our distance. We say that he's welcome to worship with us, but our actions may not really show it. Do we as Christians show favoritism? We claim we don't, but maybe we do in subtle ways. Again, we a trip over our feet to greet Tim Tebow. But would we do the same in getting to know the ex-criminal who was newly born again? Why is this? Why do we act differently towards, towards people? We do it because it's human nature. We like what's comfortable to us. We want connections with the famous and the wealthy and the powerful. It makes us look good. But if we befriend the poor, the disabled, the drug addict, the gender-confused teen, there's no gain for us. So we tend not to do it. So James is teaching us here a very powerful truth. This is something for us, the church. That real faith sees and values people equally. No favoritism. We can't say Tim Tebow is more valuable than the ex-criminal. We can't say that 20-somethings are more valuable than senior citizens. We can't say that missionaries are more valuable than mechanics. We can't place different values on people based on race, gender, or economic status. We cannot place different values on people based on spiritual gifts and leadership gifts. This is not how God operates. It's not how Jesus operates. It's not how the Holy Spirit operates. And neither can we, the church, operate in this way. 
James uses some very, very strong language. He's saying favoritism isn't just something to be kind of frowned upon or kind of discouraged. No, James is saying that favoritism is evil. Favoritism is sin. It's the opposite of real faith. Again, we have Jesus as our example. Jesus did not show favoritism. Think of his encounter with the woman at the well. Think of the friendship that he built with the tax collector named Zacchaeus. Think of how Jesus literally put his hand on the lepers, even though they were socially outcasts. James tells us that we need to live like Jesus, to see and value people equally. No favoritism. Principle number two. Real faith builds relationships on the foundation of love. No conditions. In verses 8 through 11, James is referring to that Old Testament law, love your neighbor as yourself, a law which Jesus then reiterated as one of the summarizing laws. One that really, if you could boil all the law into two commands, the first being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is saying relationships must be built on love, unconditional love. The illustration we have from the New Testament is the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a man that was robbed and beaten by thieves, left for dead in the ditch, and this Samaritan comes bandages his wounds, takes him to an inn, and pays for his stay there. The Samaritan showed love, tangible, practical love, unconditional love. Unconditional love means love with, with no conditions, no expectation of anything in return. The Samaritan didn't expect this man to pay him back. He did it simply out of love. And James is saying this is how relationships must be built. They must be built on this foundation of love with no conditions, no expectations, 
simply the love of God. Now, I don't believe Scripture teaches that we let people walk all over us, that we let people use us and abuse us. No. There's balance in all of this. Be smart. Be as shrewd as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. But the royal law of love must be followed by all of us as believers. It truly is the basis for relationships. Healthy, thriving relationships are always built on unconditional love. And also, love is what the godless world will see. And it will be that magnet that draws them to the Savior. And I believe one of the biggest issues for us today as the church is how we are perceived by the unbelieving world. We are perceived to be a hateful bunch of people. We are viewed as being horribly intolerant. And one of the biggest lies that Satan is pushing right now is that if I as a Christian don't agree with you, then I hate you. For example, abortion supporters perceive that Christians hate them. LGBTQ perceives that Christians hate them. BLM movement supporters believe Christians hate them. Again, it's one of the biggest lies that Satan is pushing in our modern-day culture. This idea that disagreement equals hate. And this is a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Now, has the church navigated these cultural issues perfectly? No. I'm not going to stand up here and defend what some Christians have said and done. But I am here to say this morning that we as Christians can love people unconditionally while at the same time not agreeing with their viewpoints. We can be compassionate without compromising convictions. How do I know this? I know this because this is the way Jesus lived. Jesus engaged people relationally who had very different lifestyles, very different beliefs, very different viewpoints. He loved them with the love of God he related to them, engaging with them in conversation, being compassionate without ever compromising truth. 
and God-given convictions. Again, think of the woman at the well. She was in a sinful lifestyle. The man she was living with was not her husband, and yet Jesus showed grace and love and compassion, and he spoke truth in great, great love. And the Samaritan woman's life was radically changed. Again, think of Zacchaeus, a man opposite of Christ in every way. Yet Jesus befriended him and invited him to become a part of the kingdom of God. It was a very loving, neighborly kind of relationship. And Zacchaeus changed. He repented and believed in Jesus. Did everybody that Jesus engaged with relationally come to faith? No. Even Jesus, in the fullness of God, in all of His deity, there were still people whom He related to who chose to walk away. But it can be done. It can be done to love people, to love them compassionately without compromising our beliefs. Moving on, principle number three. Real faith chooses mercy over judgment. No excuses. Again, we see this in verses 12 through 13, and James wraps us up with this great statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the account that comes to my mind is the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you remember that story, there was a man who owed an incredible amount of money. In modern day values, it would be a half a million a debt that he could never, ever, ever, ever pay. And he went to the man whom he owed the money and begged for mercy. And the man showed him mercy and totally wiped clean the debt. Well, the man who had been shown mercy then goes out and finds a friend who owes him $50. And he demands payment immediately. Even though he had been forgiven a half a million, he was unwilling to forgive the $50. Jesus says, real faith chooses mercy. Don't be like the servant who received mercy. And then you yourself are unwilling to give mercy to others. 
spiritually speaking, each one of us in this room had a spiritual debt that we could never, ever, ever pay. The only way we could pay that debt was by physical death and spiritual death. And as sinners, we deserve the judgment of a holy God. We deserve spiritual death. But Jesus said to the Father, I love the world so much that I'm going to go and become one of them. I'm going to become fully human. And I'm going to live and dwell among them. And I'm going to go and pay the sin debt that they owe. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to take all the sins of the world upon myself. And I'm going to make that payment. And God the Father said, I agree. Thank you, Son, for your willingness to sacrifice your life for the world. And it's what Jesus did. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this is their plan. And so we have received by faith the gift of mercy, the gift of God's grace. And that's an incredible gift. And our responsibility is to show mercy to others. Mercy triumphs, has victory over judgment. Real faith chooses mercy. No excuses. Real faith builds relationships on the foundation of love. No conditions. And real faith sees and values people equally. No favoritism. Let me close with the application for this week. Give you a little bit of homework. I want us to focus on relationships within the church and outside the church. So, two assignments. First of all, pray and encourage another believer. Pray and encourage another believer. Pray and ask God who that person should be. Pray right now. Pray right now. I'll give you 10 seconds. Go. Pray. Pray who that believer is that you'll maybe send a text message to, text of encouragement. Maybe you'll send a handwritten note. Maybe you'll invite that person for breakfast or lunch. But just engage with them relationally. Be about all the one another's of the New Testament. The praying, the carrying of burdens the encouraging, the spurring on towards loving good deeds, all of those one another's. 
So that's your first assignment. Pray and encourage another believer. Second one, the one outside of the walls of PMC. Engage relationally with a non-Christian. Pray and engage relationally with a non-Christian. Maybe you know right now who that is. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a next door neighbor. But initiate a conversation. Build the friendship. Maybe you won't even talk about the gospel. And that's okay. Because I believe God's spirit and his timing will give you that opportunity. But let's work on the relationship aspect of it. Just be a friend. Talk about what interests him or her. Pray for that opportunity to speak Jesus. Do whatever it takes to point him or her to the Father. That's your assignment. That's your application from James chapter 2. Let me close us in prayer. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the teacher here this morning. Pray your text would continue to ring loud and clear in our minds. May it then go to our hearts, that transformation, so that we are truly living like Jesus here in the year 2022. Help us to engage relationally with the lost in our communities and in our county, in our nation, in the world. Help us to build those friendships and to be able to speak Jesus into them. I also pray that we'd be able to encourage one another here among us in this family of believers. Help us to truly show love and grace and mercy and encouragement. Lord, I pray that the relationships among us would be strong and healthy and thriving and vibrant so that the world can see the love that we have for you and the love that we have for one another. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would equip us and empower us in all things. And may we be the church in this lost and dying world. I ask this in your gracious, merciful, and mighty name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us here this morning. Take time to talk and converse with each other. Have a wonderful, wonderful day and a great week. I love you all.